Let us give our attention once again to the reading of it. Luke 10, verse 10. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, Even the very dust of your city which cleaveth on us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, shalt be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray briefly for the preaching. O Lord our God, we come to a word that is oft neglected and quite solemn. And we pray, O God, that you would enable thy minister to preach this word faithfully. Uh, What a thing it is to hear that those who preach the gospel, and faithfully so, uh, are in in a way preaching. uh, Christ is preaching through them. And we pray then that we would approach first, the minister would approach the word with sobriety, with a sense of solemnity and awe, but also that the Spirit of God would enable that, not just of the minister, but also every ear that hear. We pray in view of the teaching of this text that none of us would leave this place unchanged by the Spirit, that we would all call in the name of the Lord and hearken unto him. And so, Lord, to these ends, we pray that you would help me preach that it be not in the wisdom of man's words, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as you well know, we have been praying, specifically uh, monthly now, after we have heard preaching on Psalm 117, for an unreached people group once a month. And as we prayed in the pastoral prayer, we prayed for the Gary tribe of Somalia. And the reason we do this is because without the word of God, as Romans 10 says, how will they call on the name of the Lord? How will they call on the name of the Lord unless one is sent to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? And this is the only way ordinarily a man is saved from hell. And so that is to be our great concern when we look on the nations, that there are a great many who are perishing and will spend an eternity. This was our solemn subject a couple of weeks ago as we considered the eternal misery of hell. And as we remember what hell is and how awful a place it is, we are constrained then if the Spirit of God is in us to send the Word of God and the Gospel to the ends of the earth. But as for you here in this meeting hall that have heard of Christ and Him crucified, if you reject the Gospel yourself, having every advantage, if you reject Him until your death, and you do not close with Christ before that, hell will be far more tolerable for the people in Somalia than for you. And that is the solemn word of God that we have today. Consider how solemn a word we have even from a place like Hebrews chapter 10.29, a few verses after our call to worship. Listen to this well. How much sorer punishment How much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? What a terrible thing it is to willfully reject the Son of God when he is held forth before you. Today we ought to reflect on the question from the Word of God, what am I doing with what I know of Jesus Christ? What am I doing with what I know? What light I have from Christ? Am I rejecting and refusing his mercies? Am I pushing him away, even as he beseeches me to come to him? 
This should rouse you up out of your spiritual slumber, friend, if you're apart from Christ. And even if you are a believer, the Word of God teaches that if you go against the light that you have, yes, praise God, there is no condemnation for you if you are truly united to Christ by saving faith. But how great a chastening you might receive from the Lord for going against the light that you possess. If you ignore Him, if you ignore His Word in any matter, to go against the light of the Word is a dangerous thing. So our theme is the terrible judgment on those who reject Jesus, mostly speaking here to the unbeliever. But there are going to be areas where the believer has to take heed. The terrible judgment on those who reject Jesus. And we'll consider it under three heads this morning. First is the witness of miracles. Second is the degrees of misery, speaking of hell. And third is the hearing or listening to ministers. Our first heading, the witness of miracles. Well, last time, as you recall, Jesus sent out his 70 disciples and sent them out two by two into every city that he would enter to go and preach the gospel. And we heard in that sermon our great need to pray for gospel labors, for the harvest is truly great and the laborers are few. And when his disciples went into a town that would not receive the word of God, he says, as we have read just today, they were to wipe the dust off their feet. And what that is, is a sign of judgment upon the town. That's as though the dust of that town itself will be condemned and is to be uh, counted as terribly unclean. We don't want anything of this place to cling to us, for it will be utterly judged. And these cities, Christ said, would fare worse than Sodom in the judgment. And now coming into our text, we see that his warning is not just rhetoric. It's not just a hypothetical. There were cities here that had rejected the gospel, and he names two of them here in Luke's account. Verse 13, he pronounces woe. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which had been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Why these curses? And I think you need to uh, pay attention to the why as we will return to it. They did not repent. That is the aim that he had for them in hearing the word of God. Though they had received and seen great miracles and they had heard powerful, great and mighty gospel preaching, these cities did not turn from their sin and they did not turn to Jesus for salvation alone. And the word shows, the word of God, uh, as you might even remember it yourself, uh, demonstrates the truth of this. The Lord Jesus had done great and mighty things in these cities. Let's take Bethsaida. Boys and girls, the name of the city means house of fishing. House of fishing. And that's quite appropriate as you remember who came from this town. You remember that Peter, right, that fisherman who was made a fisher of men, what came from Bethsaida, along with Andrew and Philip. This is a fishing town. Now, in Luke 9, the prior chapter, you might remember, boys and girls, that Jesus performed a great miracle there. What was this great miracle? It was the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. And this was truly a great miracle, as you remember it. In fact, as we meditated on it, we saw it was really the second greatest miracle second only to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is recorded in every gospel account. But we remember the solemn truth of the matter, that as great as this miracle was, the people missed the point of it. You remember from John 6, 26, when the people came to Jesus and they saw the miracle, they only wanted the carnal bread. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. And he said, don't seek the bread that perishes and is expelled from the body. You need to seek me. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat or food which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. This is the hardness of men's hearts. They will miss the point of every miracle because they don't want the one that the miracle points to. 
the bread of life. Instead, we instead, naturally speaking, only want to eat bread that perishes and will be expelled from the body and we will refuse the Savior who will give to men everlasting life. This is the great hardness of man's heart that would exchange the Savior for a loaf of bread. What a terrible thing that is, a terrible crime and sin. And this is why you're starting to see why Sodom will fare better than a town that comes and has this equation. But Jesus, I think this helps round out things, performed other miracles at Bethsaida as well. It truly had a great witness. In Mark 8, you remember Jesus healed a blind man. And you remember that intermediate state where he sees men walking as trees. In Mark 6, Jesus walked on water there. And in the 52nd verse of Mark 6, we find that the disciples were actually astonished that he performed this miracles, this miracle. And the answer to why they were astonished is actually quite illuminating and shows us the problem. In that text, the Holy Ghost says, for they considered not the miracle of the loaves. Right? They were astonished Jesus did this thing. They didn't remember the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Why? For their heart was hardened. And this comes to the root problem of man. In the face of great miracles, their heart is often hardened. And so, brethren, let's be plain. No matter how great the miracle or how powerful the preaching might be, it will not avail you unless your heart is softened by the Holy Ghost to receive it. In fact, these things, preaching and miracles, uh, would likely harden your heart to Christ all the more. Why does man harden his heart to the message of the gospel? And it's really this simple. You've heard it a couple times. The gospel calls for your repentance. The gospel calls for your repentance. And repentance, we hear, is the very message that these cities had rejected. Jesus said that those cities should have repented and sat in sackcloth and ashes. When he speaks of sackcloth and ashes, of course, you're reminded of Joel 2.13, which is showing you that repentance uh, is signified outwardly amongst the ancient people of God in sackcloth and ashes. And children, you might remember what Nineveh's response to the preaching of Jonah was. What was that? A repentance in sackcloth and ashes at the mighty preaching of Jonah. And showing as well that as Jonah did no miracles before their face, that the power is in the preaching of the word anyway. It's not in the miracles, which just testify to the veracity of the preaching. So why does natural man not repent no matter how many convincing proofs are given of the Savior, no matter how well you and I might even prove the truth of the Word of God, it is because men love darkness more than light. They love sin more than righteousness. And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. John three nineteen through 20. My friend, it doesn't matter how many miracles you observe that prove that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, come from heaven into the world to save sinners. It doesn't matter how many ontological proofs I can give you of God's existence. It doesn't matter, I, I can show you prophecy after prophecy written thousands of years ago before Christ that are fulfilled only in Him. It doesn't matter, I can show you all of that, but you will deny it all because your love for sin overshadows any evidence that can be given to you and you will not give up your sin. And that's the primary problem. Now, you might recall, and I always thought that this was so well done, that in that famous Bonson-Stein debate, um, and I'm not even a, a presuppositionalist, but it is a wonderful way to see how Bonson handles the man. The question was posed to Dr. Stein, the atheist, over what would be adequate evidence for him for God's existence. And Dr. Stein, the atheist, claimed that if he saw a miracle with his eyes, such as the podium arising from the stage for about a minute, five feet uh, above it, he said that would be evidence of God's existence that I would accept. And you remember what Bonson's response was. He wisely and biblically said, no, 
what Dr. Stein needs is a new heart. He said that even if the podium arose, Dr. Stein would not be satisfied until he found a naturalistic explanation for it. Because the natural man, even though he knows God, hates God. Stein had to be converted to believe. He, and this is the truth of the matter. right? You look at all these miracles in the Bible. Um, how few believed after the miracles were done? You want to think about that for a moment, friends. Because one common slam against the scripture is, oh, ancient man is so stupid. And he doesn't understand natural explanations for miracles. But the issue is actually this, that natural man saw these miracles and didn't believe. The testimony is not that men were in awe and then fell down and embraced Christ. No, the general principle is men see miracles and they still don't respond to the Lord. This is the thing. It's the hardness of man's heart, whether you are in the 21st century or the 1st century. The human heart is the same. We recently considered the rich man in hell. That man being tormented said to Abraham, No, Abraham, if one went unto them, meaning his brothers, from the dead, then they will repent. But what did Abraham say in response? If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded. The one rose from the dead. Luke 16.31 Abraham said and knew that men are converted and they repent when the Holy Spirit blesses the word of God. They have Moses and the prophets. You don't hear them. You don't hear the word of God. No miracle is going to convince you of the truth of the word, which is what Romans 10 says, of course. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word and repentance comes when faith comes, when the word of God is blessed by the Holy Spirit, especially in the preaching of it. If they will not be converted by the word, a miracle will avail not. And you saw there that Abraham was alluding to the greatest miracle of all, Christ's resurrection. And sad to say, even today with many convincing proofs of Christ's resurrection, how many men will come up with alternate theories for Christ's resurrection? The swoon theory and other things men will draw out. Why, though, do they not want the resurrection of Christ? Because they love their sin more than they love the Savior. More than they love holiness. More than they love righteousness. Even though Christ says to men, right? why why do they not believe in the resurrection? Even though Christ says, I will forgive you of all your sin freely if you turn to me. It's because they love their sin more than they love their own life, really, if you think of it that way. What a thing that is. You know, children, as you grow older and you go, some of you are starting college, you'll find that as you go to the campuses, right, you'll find students who say, I'm just too smart to believe in Jesus. I'm too smart to believe in God. And I was one such as that at one point, so I understand this thing. But they are not so smart as they think. Really, the issue is they want to live like beasts. That's really the issue. What is usually under their rejection, especially so much today, is they want to do things like fornicate. They love their sin more than they love their Savior, or they chase some other combination of sins. Let us be plain in this. It is sin that men love. They don't love arguments against God. It is sin that they love. And they know that if God is real, and they understand that they are suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness, then they will have to give their lives to the Lord. They will have to serve Him. And they won't do that. Romans 1, verse 18. And so, friend, if you're here and you have pushed away the Savior, you have no intellectual problem at all. You have a sin problem. And you have a love for your sin. And you love it more than God. You don't have an intellectual problem. You don't have an evidentiary problem. You have a heart problem. Jesus said something quite remarkable to show how hard their hearts were. He said that if Tyre and Sidon had seen his works, they would have repented. Now, you might know that Tyre and Sidon were of Phoenicia. And you remember who came from Phoenicia, Jezebel, hailed from there. And Ezekiel would later prophesy against them, and they would be destroyed by Babylon. Now, they never did repent, and they were destroyed. 
And you may not be so familiar with these Phoenician cities in your Bible, but in Matthew's parallel account, Jesus notes another city that would have repented if they had heard the word from him. And that city staggers the mind. It is Sodom. Matthew 11.23, If the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Now I'm going to return to Sodom in our second heading when I consider degrees of misery. But you need to keep the thought in your mind. Jesus is saying Bethsaida is worse than Sodom. And we don't often have that economy of sin in our heart and our mind. Most of us then have a wrong view of the heinousness of sins. Rejecting Jesus is a worse sin than sodomy. Rejecting Jesus is a worse sin than sodomy. Sodomy is abhorrent to God. Let's not (laughs) mince words. But rejecting Jesus, far worse than that. The other thing you notice is something of a hypothetical Christ lays out, that these cities would have repented if they had witnessed his works. Now, much of that is rhetorical, and it's a condescension to our way of talking and speaking, which is that we speak of one group far worse than another. Not to say, um, so it's rhetorical, that Bethsaida's hardness was worse than the hardness of the men of Sodom. But I think it also does demonstrate to you and me the sovereignty of God in salvation. Right? God had a remedy to give to Sodom, to Tyre and Sidon, but he didn't give it to them. Right? Calvin said, although God had a remedy in his power for saving the inhabitants of Sodom, yet in destroying them, he was a just avenger. Meaning that there are places on the earth still, right, as we've been praying, that don't have a gospel witness. But when they are judged, they are still judged fairly. They are judged for their sin. And they do perish apart from the gospel being preached. Because if any perish, they perish for their own sin that condemns them. They have been suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness and serving the creature over the creator who is blessed over all. And if one does not receive God's mercy, that is God's own prerogative. No man is owed salvation. And we need to remove that thought out of our heart and our mind. That God is gracious to save any. And if he saved none, he is righteous and just. And God is still good. And God is still love. But what is perhaps most stunning is how few will take mercy when God does hold it out to them. So here you are, sitting under the word of God today. And the question is, will you prove yourself worse than the sodomite that sought to violate holy angels. Because that is what you will be in the judgment. Worse than that. Will you prove worse than a sodomite? Jesus Christ says that unless you turn to him in faith and love, he pronounces woe, not only on the cities that rejected him, but any individual that rejects him too. What a dreadful thing it is to hear God incarnate pronounce a woe on an entire city. Isn't that a terrible thing? And he will pronounce woe on you too if you reject him. The inhabitants of Nineveh turned at Jonah's preaching and one greater than Jonah is here in the word of God, Jesus Christ, son of God, and you are to repent. I'll come back to that in a moment, but let's continue on and consider our second heading now, which is degrees of misery. Consider verses 14 and 15. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, at least in their mind, shalt be thrust down to hell. And here the Lord teaches that there are degrees of punishment in hell. As is providential, I was telling the elders this this morning, that this providential text comes after we have heard preaching on hell so recently. And here the word of God teaches this truth. And there are also degrees of reward in heaven, which I'll touch on tonight. But first, before we consider the degrees of punishment, let's not ignore the fact that Jesus Christ said, at the judgment, there is judgment to come. This is the truth of God's word. Don't put it out of your mind. One day he will judge you and he will judge me. Few want to hear it. Fewer still want to believe it. 
And very few after that want to turn to the Lord to be saved. But the Savior says there is judgment to come. You and I will be judged by God Almighty, by the Creator who made us, who made you for what purpose? To honor Him, to glorify Him, to enjoy Him. And these are His rights, and these are His due. And God the Father, we read in the Scripture, has committed the final judgment to God the Son. 2 Corinthians 5, 10 and 11. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. We heard that a few weeks ago. If you will not receive Christ as your Savior then, but the Scripture says you will receive Christ as your judge. And I think it is so fitting, isn't it, beloved, that those who reject Jesus as Savior will have Jesus himself judge them. It's such a fitting thing. Perhaps the most terrifying question and most penetrating question to you who die in unbelief is him asking you, why did you refuse me? Why did you refuse me? Why did you love your sin so much to burn for it eternally? When I said I would give you freely rivers of living water, that if you were athirst, all you had to do is come and find rest in me forever. Why did you refuse me? And you will have no good answer to give at all. In that moment, you will see how stunningly stupid you have been to refuse great mercies for the sake of the fleeting pleasures of sin, which will only bring ruin on you eternally and also brought ruin on you in several ways in this life. No, a few weeks ago, I preached to you on the terror and horror of hell where we thought on the everlasting punishment of both soul and body. And perhaps the greatest terror of it is that it never ends, right? Never ends. A never-ending sinking into that terrible pit of misery and hopelessness where you have no comfort and no relief from the flame and the fire. And we heard of the worm of conscience, didn't we? That God will use to torment you forever and ever and ever. What a torment it would be for you to have your own conscience torment you. You who sit here and refuse the Savior. That I heard of Christ, your own conscience telling you this and never letting up. You heard of Jesus and you never went to him. You fool. And then seeing in heaven above as the rich man saw Lazarus enjoying feasting and pleasures at God's right hand forevermore. Your conscience saying that could have been me. That could have been me, and I didn't take the Savior. Don't have that be eternity for you, friend, if you're apart from the Lord. Instead, flee to him and have everlasting life and joy. You'll hear of heaven tonight that at thy right hand is fullness of joy, the pleasures forevermore. That's what you can have freely in Christ. But I do want to also treat this doctrine of greater punishment for you out of the word of God. Because Jesus introduces the idea here briefly, but it is taught in the scripture. And degrees of punishment in hell is quite just if you think about it for a moment. It is worse today for Hitler in hell than for a man who lusted after women his whole life, even though both justly are condemned forever, having never taken Christ. Micah 2.1 says, woe to those who devise iniquity, right? There's a greater woe on those who devise and execute iniquity in their heart. And though the Bible shows that the duration of hell is the same for all, the degree of damnation is greater for some. And the greatest punishments in hell are meted to those who particularly sin against Christ and his people. For instance, consider the woes Christ pronounces on those who cause children in the faith to stumble. Matthew 18, 6. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to you who cause young believers especially, whether no matter the age, immature or young, new to the faith, whether very little or very old, 
Woe to you if you cause them to stumble into sin and you induce them to chase after it. He also has greater woes to dole out on those who persecute the men of God. Matthew 23, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets, meaning you put them in there, and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. Those who torment and afflict the people of God for the sake of the gospel, they who scorn them and move past that to persecute them like the Pharisees and scribes did, they will have greater woe in hell. What of you who might be here who's the religious hypocrite? Great woes are heaped on you. Mark 12, beware of the scribes which love to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. A greater damnation on those who love to use religion for advancement. You can think, maybe comes to your mind, the TV televangelist or Rome's ostentatious and glitzy priesthood. But even you, if you have used Christ for your own advancement alone, if your prayers have been a pretense amongst God's people, if your religion was not true but was hypocrisy, Friend, let me warn you, Jesus says, greater is your damnation than those who never played around at this. And that's something that should chill the heart of everyone who is tempted to be a hypocrite. You're not to play games with the Almighty. These will receive the greater damnation. Do not cause outward religion, faithless religion, unconverted religion to add to the sorrows of hell for you. Humble yourself before God. Turn to the Lord with true faith and repent. Now, the glory is, until the day you die, there is great hope for any of you here. Whether you're a hypocrite or a persecutor or a blasphemer of God. And the great example of this, of course, is the Apostle Paul himself, who said, who was before speaking of himself, a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. But what? I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. And there's the faithful saying worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So the grace of Jesus is abundant to forgive So many former Pharisees found mercy in him and averted a dreadful torture in hell. And you can too. He will lay aside every sin. He will take it upon himself if you come to him, but only before death and the judgment to come. But as we turn up the degrees of punishment in hell, there is that dread word, apostasy. Apostasy, which is professing Christ with the mouth, but then leaving him later in life. These are they who will receive the greatest torments of all. I read it. I'll read it again. Hebrews 10.29 Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Almost All of you here that I know of have pledged to be Christ's. You say with the mouth that you have taken Christ by faith. You have taken the blood of Christ, which cleanses from all sin and will save. But what will happen if that was a lie? If that profession of faith was a lie and you have not truly believed and then you depart from the Lord's side? What will happen to you? when you apostatize and you deny his blood and trample the Son of God underfoot. Far greater torments, the greatest of all, are for you and not for Hitler. Far greater are the torments for you and not for Hitler. Hitler never professed the Son of God as his Lord and Savior. And it is worse to trample underfoot the Son of God's blood than the blood of millions of Jews. Other Jews, as Jesus was a Jew, of course. Now, children, 
you have been baptized and you have come into the covenant externally. You have been brought into it. And the first Chronicle, uh, Corinthians 7 says, you are positionally holy before the Lord. You have come into the covenant administration. That doesn't justify you. It doesn't save you unless you come to the Lord by faith. But your birthright is the covenant. Uh, you are named a Christian. You are baptized when you are born into this world because you have one at least believing parent. The solemn thing you have to remember is a greater hell actually awaits you if you turn from the Lord later in life. If you renounce the Lord and walk away from him, hell is far worse for you than it will be for my Hindu parents. And that's the solemn thing that you must remember. You have heard the gospel week after week after week. Your parents have pled with you to take Christ and have prayed with you. And if you abandon him for the fleeting pleasures of sin, how great your misery will be eternally. So you need to cleave to Christ as your life and never abandon him. Otherwise, you betray Christ. And betrayers find themselves in the greatest torments. You remember Judas who betrayed the Lord. He, above all, faces the greatest terrors of hell forever. And it's shuddering to think, right? Jesus said in John 19.11, He that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin, greater than the Pharisees, greater than those who crucified him. Judas has the greater sin, such that Jesus would say of Judas what? It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Apostates and heretics will receive a greater condemnation in hell. What a thing it will be at the judgment seat, friend, if you have professed Christ and you walk away from him for you to hear from Judah, Jesus as you are condemned. It would have been good for you if you had never been born. And then your misery begins. Well, those in Bethsaida truly ended up with a hotter hell than those in Sodom. And I think after this text, maybe we need to evaluate cities differently. It is going to be far worse for the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex on the Day of Judgment with all the gospel preaching here if it rejects Jesus Christ than it is for San Francisco. That's what Jesus is plainly saying. Greater the gospel light, the worse the judgment. You can have a place with a bunch of sodomites that will be judged less with no gospel witness than a place like this place, which has this outward show of morality, like Capernaum, who thinks that it has hoisted itself to heaven, but it's going to be cast down to hell. And so moralism cannot save us. Only fleeing to Christ can. And again, in this preaching of the word, Christ can say to you with truth at the judgment that he has held out his hand to you, friend. What will you do with his outstretched arms, even now being sent to you to offer to you mercy to freely take it? Will you bat it away? Take him, embrace him, believe in him, be saved by him. How terrible. This, is, this message is a double-edged sword for you. On the one hand, if you flee to Christ because you have heard the gospel today, praise be unto God and you will praise him forever and ever without end. But if you reject this message till the day you die, that sword will cut you and it will cut deeply. And I would not want to be in your shoes, friend. So have you taken him? Romans 2.5 says, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, there is that reason why, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Let that verse not be you, friends. And let the wrath that was stored up for you and for me too uh, be placed on the Savior in your stead. And think on the prior verse, which is what this Preaching ought to be to you. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. 
It is the goodness of God that you, unlike the tribe in Somalia, have heard the preaching of the gospel. Don't ignore it. He is willing to save you out of every condemnation. And the more that you hear of his goodness, and this goes to you children, and the more that you reject it, the more that you are treasuring up wrath for yourself that will be loosed upon your head forever as coals of fire. Believe on Christ and then believe that Christ took those coals for you on the cross or else you will pay eternally. Now, say you have received Christ. You have closed with him by faith. What is the use of this knowledge for you, believer? And I praise God if you have. And I have praised God for myself as well more and more that the Lord showed himself to me. But what is the use for you and me, the believer, of this knowledge? First, besides being thankful that there is no condemnation and how great our condemnation justly would be. Second, is to remember that though there is no condemnation, there is chastisement in this life. It is the fatherly love of God to correct us when we sin. Hebrews 12 speaks of that, of course. Our good father in love correcting us for our sin. And that is meant to spur us on in holy living. But it's also to take warning from the general principle of how much light we have received. Because even those in Christ will be chastened according to the light we receive and reject. Luke 12, 47, 48. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. Now the danger of being in a church like this, being in our tradition as the Reformed Church, is that we have a lot of light. A lot of light. And it is more dangerous for you and me, believer, to sin against the light we have than a Christian that sins against light they do not have. I've said this to some of you um, personally. If you know what God requires and you sin against that light, do not be surprised if you are chastened greatly for it. For instance, if you know about the Sabbath and you sin against that light, do not be surprised if the Lord brings chastening into your life and your evangelical neighbor who has never heard about keeping the Sabbath holy does not um, find any chastening because they trample on the Sabbath and they work on it. This is the principle of the word of God. You are not to sin against the light that you have. It's bad enough to sin against light you don't have. Remember, Jesus forgives us of the sins of ignorance. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. However, we are especially accountable for the light that we have received and ignored. And examples abound in the scripture. You consider David's sins, right, with uh, uh, Uriah against Uriah and Bathsheba. He knew better. Now, his sin is more heinous because he's also the king. But he also knew better. The sweet psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart. And though David is in heaven now, saved by faith in the son of David, how great was his chastisement on the earth. His family seemingly destroyed. His kingdom ripped apart because of the displeasure of God against the light that David had. In like manner, Jeremiah, and you can tie this to the preaching of Christ here, Jeremiah recognized how great Judah's punishment was and tie the words of the Savior here. For the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom that was overthrown as in a moment and no hand stayed on her. Lamentations 4.6 Judah suffered more greatly than Sodom because of the light that she had. Judah suffered a long time. It's children begging for bread, cannibalism afoot, mothers eating their children, whereas Sodom is destroyed in an instant. Greater is the punishment on Judah than on Sodom. And this truth is meant to deter you, the people of God, from playing with sin. Willful sins of yours will receive greater chastisement. I encourage you to review larger catechism question 151. It's a very long answer. And it tells you what are those aggravations that make some sins more heinous than others. Read it. 
and read the scripture proofs and may that deter you from walking in sin and that you would walk according to the Spirit's power and dependence upon him, walking according to the light and not the darkness. Well, with time going fast away, we have to conclude with the hearing of ministers and I only get a chance to treat this briefly, but I trust that if you review our sermon on how to hear preaching, uh, the primacy of it, then you'll understand more fully what this heading speaks to. And so you might say, well, pastor, if Jesus were here right now saying these things, then I will hear what he has to say, but who are you to preach these things to me? And so strongly against my own self and fine. Yes, uh, fair enough. I'm not Jesus. That is true. And I'm just a mere man. That is true as well. But according to the office I have been ordained to, Christ says that as long as I preach faithfully the word of God, you hear Jesus and you hear the one who sent Jesus, who is the Father. And so that is why I have brought the Holy Scripture to you. And as Paul told Timothy, I'm preaching the word of God. And what Christ says in this text is those of you who do hear the word preached, and faithfully so, not everything that a man preaches or any man necessarily is preaching faithfully the word of God, but insofar as what has been preached is according to the word of God, you are hearing Christ himself. Verse 16, he that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him that sent me. Those of you who right now despise the preaching of the word or to despise it is really to even be indifferent to it, you are despising Christ, and you are despising God the Father. That is what you are doing. And this is why, when you think of it, the sin of... um, Places like Bethsaida is so much greater than the sin of Sodom. Sodom didn't have this gospel witness. And Sodom was judged. But Bethsaida heard from God himself in the flesh through Christ's ministers. So to sit under gospel preaching is no small thing. There is no take it or leave it when it comes to faithful preaching. Christ's words in our text also ought to inform ministers as to the gravity of preaching, what it is. They are speaking on Christ's behalf. And so these are meant to be solemn and sober, words faithful to the word of God. But also these words ought to inform us on the gravity of hearing preaching. You slumber, you snore, you are despising the one who actually came to send the minister. You reject it, again, insofar as it is the word of God that is preached, then you are rejecting the one who was sent by the Father. So you and I both, minister and member, are not off the hook when it comes to preaching. Hebrews 12.25, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. And so when he preaches, a minister preaches in Christ's stead. He's not Christ. He cannot preach anything he wants. He must preach the word, as the Bible says. But I also want to say this, because especially in our American church culture and in the kind of environment that we're in, we have a tendency, on the other hand, to idolize ministers, which ought never be the case at all, at all. You're not to confuse the man who is sent with the one who does the sending. A minister can be beloved to a certain point, but he is not to be made into an idol. They are just mere men. Even the angel in the Revelation told John, don't worship me, worship God. How much more so a mere man? Ministers come, they go. You're not to love them more than Jesus. And you're to ascribe whatever good comes out of their ministry to Christ alone. That said, if we have dealt with the negative aspect of those who hear and reject, as we considered in our sermon on preaching itself, what a positive aspect there is when you consider Christ's words, he that heareth you heareth me. What a wonderful thing it is, beloved, that if you 
have heard the word of God preached, imploring you to receive him by faith, that you will be thoroughly and totally saved if you come to him and you have been uh, implored to do so. A minister has begged you to do it and has pled with you. You are here in Christ himself. What a wonderful thing that is when a minister preaches the word and you have heard Christ. We are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Jesus is telling you now, I am speaking to you. If you hear the minister, you are hearing me. You can say, this is your good shepherd speaking to you now. And you can say, I hear his voice. You can say the voice of my beloved and he calls me. You're not hearing cunningly devised fables. You are hearing Christ himself. And that is the glory of the ministry of the word of God. And why it must never be replaced or removed out of its central place in the worship of God. Never. Well, I hope and pray you have heard Jesus today. May the Holy Spirit open your heart to receive the word of Christ. And if you've never believed on him, may this be the day for you in which you call on his name and know that you are going to be saved forever. And if you do believe, may you more earnestly respond and heed the word of God, knowing it is the word of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we will leave Luke here for a few weeks, but let us now, if able, arise for prayer. O oh, ever-blessed God and Father, what a great privilege we have to have the word of God and a gospel that is perspicuous, that is so plain, that shows the way of salvation, that all we must do is when Christ holds himself forth to us, we are simply to flee to him, to cling to him by faith, to repent of our sin and to be saved forever not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but totally and wholly for the mercies of God in Christ. O oh Lord, we are a privileged people to hear this. And yet with great privileges come, as they say, great responsibility, a responsibility to hear a word that so many billions have not heard. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear what the Spirit saith unto the church. And may we turn to the Lord in faith this day. May those who are unconverted be converted. May they not seek after the miracle, but may they seek after Christ. May they trust in him and his word. And may for those of us who do believe, help us, Lord, not sin against light. Help us not sin against the light of the word, and instead cause us to walk in the light, not by the flesh, for we cannot be perfected by it, thou hast said, but instead by thy spirit. So send thy spirit to help us walk in the light, and help us to hate the darkness and not love it, and help us to love and adore our Savior, keeping our thoughts fixed in heaven. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.